God, thank you for your word, and we appreciate so much um, that you left this for us. And pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would fill us as we go through this text. Um, pray a blessing on people. I pray that this text is encouraging to them. In Jesus' name, amen. So there might be someone out there who is not a follower of Jesus and um, wondering what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And the question I have for you is, what is preventing you from being a follower of Jesus? And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, my question for you is, how often do you feel discouraged as a Christian? You know, sometimes you feel you're, you're making progress, that you're, you're doing really well, and then you fail, or you fall, and then you feel like you're doing really well again, and then you fall, and then you get up again, and then you do really well. And then when it, when it comes to moving forward, you find that you always kind of regress at some point as well. Now, I want to encourage you by telling you that you're not alone, that many people feel this way. If you look around you, if you're sitting next to someone that there's a high likelihood that sometime during the week that that person has failed. Sometime during the week that that person has fallen, that they've sinned. And I'm actually being quite generous because they've probably sinned within the last hour, if we're honest. That something in us is just kind of just not quite right. You know, something's going on. Now, let's not look at the Christian life as one where we're all put together perfectly. We have everything just neatly packaged and... You know, the Christian life is one of redemption, where moment by moment we're, we're given this new start. And I bring this up because it's in our text this evening. The disciples were with Jesus, and they weren't just with Jesus in terms of like us spiritually, but they were with him physically. Like there's a tangible Jesus with them. And so it's not just spiritually, it's also physically. And Jesus was right there in their face. Jesus verbally called them with his audible voice. And they chose to follow him. They chose to obey him and do what he instructed of them. And what I want to point out in our text this evening is how gifted and talented the disciples were at getting things wrong. They're really good at this. Now, we start back in the Mount of Transfiguration where I left off a few weeks ago. In verse 33, when Peter said to Jesus, he said this, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, what Luke adds at the end of this verse, I I really like. It says, not knowing what he said. And I find that pretty funny. Now, Luke's honest here. He tells us that Peter doesn't even know what he's saying. Now, you keep this scene in your, your mind as we move forward. Okay, keep this in your mind because we have here Peter, James, and, and John. They are so privileged to be up on the mountaintop to experience this glory of the transfiguration in Jesus. And then they get to hang out on top of that. They get to hang out with Moses and Elijah. So they have this incredible mountaintop experience, which some of us may have experienced ourselves. And you recall those experiences in your life. And when you come down from these mountaintop experiences to the flatlands, it's just different. right? People people who are on the flatlands don't completely understand what you just experienced. And this is often the case when people go on missions trips or they go go to conferences or go to retreats or they go to these different type of experiences where they, they, they get this really 
almost euphoric experience. And they come down, they share these experience with people, experiences with people that didn't experience that, and it's just kind of over our heads. We, don't, we just don't get it. Now you take a look at 1 Kings, I think it's either chapter 18 or 19. Right after Elijah defeats the prophets of Baal. Right, he defeats these prophets of Baal. It's a truly a mountaintop experience for him. And then he gets back down to earth. He gets to the flatlands. And right here he's freaked out by one person, Jezebel. And so Elijah, one of the greatest prophets to ever live, he has this great success. He has these incredible victories on the mountaintop. But then when he comes back down, he gets back down to the earth, the, the flatlands, and he seems to be failing. Now how many of us find ourselves in a situation like this? where we feel we've made this great progress as a Christian. We've been moving forward and moving forward, later to find out that every time we step forward, that we take two steps back. And we keep going forward, we think we're doing well, and we take two steps back. Verse 37, it says, On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And this is the very next day, the very next day after coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, now, this sermon is not about mountaintop experiences and coming back to the flatlands and tolerating life and our reality. I, I, I don't believe that that's what this text is, but this is just some kind of practical lesson that I'm trying to draw out here. Because I don't think that we are to live our lives seeking those mountaintop experiences. Oftentimes we live for those kind of two weeks of vacation that we have off, right? Or we live for these type of experiences. I can't wait till we have another retreat. Or I can't wait till I go back to that conference or whatever. But let's also not say that we don't live life without those experiences. Because those experiences are important. And sometimes during worship we have this experience. Or sometimes when we're out in nature. Or, or God reveals, us, reveals himself to us very directly in his word or while in prayer, or circumstances in our life. So we, we have these type of experiences, and I'm really grateful when this happens. Like a week and a half ago, I was sitting on a beach chair with an umbrella over me. It's white, beautiful, powdery, soft sand. The, the water is all these different shades of blue. It's just totally gorgeous. My wife is out in the nearby reef snorkeling, and my kids are frolicking in the water in these light waves that are coming in and I'm just holding my baby and right then and there is a precise moment where I just share my thankfulness to God it's beautiful and I have my family there and my wife is getting to enjoy herself and not watch kids all the time and, and it was just really great for me and it was this rich time of communication with the Lord and the time was just going by and I didn't even realize it when my wife came back out of the water it was like two three hours later and it was awesome and I had no clue that the time just went away but I had this rich communication with God at that time but the fact of the matter is most of my life is lived here it's not lived on that beach it's lived in the flatlands and God speaks to me here as well. Right? So we, we must live our life in such a way that we don't live for those moments. We don't live for those mountaintop experiences or those beachside times. But we are also not to live without those times because those are beautiful times. We are simply to live. Live where we are and wherever we're at. May the Lord speak to us. May we not just know in our heads the love of God, but we, may we feel the love of God. Now, I feel sad for those who live their faith in their head. 
And if it just stays there, where their faith is so calculated, where their faith is just everything's mapped out, right? When, when, when iCal or Google Calendar is more of their best friend. And I pray that, that this isn't you, but you know, you have everything mapped out for yourself. So you're like, I pray at this time, I do devotions at this time, I worship at this time, everything I do has this time and this place. Now, how would your spouse feel if you scheduled your time like that with him or her? Right? Honey, first thing I did when I woke up is I talked to you. Now, leave me alone until lunchtime. I've already talked to you. Or leave me alone until I go to bed. I, I, I just, I, I've already done that already. And it doesn't work that way with our relationships, does it? With our children, it doesn't work that way. In your cherished relationships, it doesn't work this way. So isn't it, isn't it great to receive from someone you love or, or whom you love just these kind of like surprise moments of, of love and these surprise moments of communication where, you know, you're going on this business trip and you open up your luggage and you find a card and it's from your spouse. And it's, it, that, that's like the most beautiful thing to me. It, it's better than like a birthday card or a Valentine's Day card because you kind of expect it, right? But when you're on this business trip and you open your luggage and you're like, oh... And they share with you what's, what's going on in their heart. Or you open up your laptop bag, and you open up your laptop, and inside that laptop is a, a picture of art that your kids drew. It says, I love you, Daddy. And it was, it's just these kind of spontaneous, unplanned times of communication of love. It's not just everything's orchestrated and, and written out and everything's planned so that it's just kind of like, well, is that real or not? And don't you love to do things for those that you love? Provide for those things. And it's not necessarily cerebral. In fact, that cerebral stuff, oftentimes it's just kind of like, oh, overthought or just... And it's it's not to say that planned things aren't good, because they are. You know, having a nice planned evening is a nice thing. But God doesn't always do that. It's not always cerebral with Him. We're created to be emotional beings, and God just doesn't meet us when we plan on Him meeting us. Oftentimes, it's not the case. Oftentimes, I get met by the Lord in times that I don't plan. I didn't plan on meeting God on the beach. It just happened. Like All these circumstances just helped me see it really clearly. And my morning devotions, oftentimes I'm reading, and yes, I get this insight from what the Lord is telling me, but oftentimes it doesn't penetrate me in terms of feeling or emotion, because it's more of like, yeah, I'm doing this. I'm just, I'm doing this. This is part of my daily routine. Most of the time when it really penetrates into my heart, it's just kind of a spontaneous thing. Just like, I, I didn't plan for it. Now, Matthew writes to us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? And it's not just when things are going well for us. When things are going bad, God is still the same generous, gracious, loving God. That's how He is all the time. He responds in love all the time, not based off of what we are doing or what we're not doing. So we just simply live our life, not for or without these kind of mountaintop experiences, but we just simply live. Now, if we don't simply live life like Jesus, we will fail to live a life of faith. And we're going to read this in our text this morning. We will also fail to live a life of understanding, 
a life of humility, and a life of acceptance. And we're going to go through all four of those kind of phases this evening. So faith, understanding, humility, and acceptance. Now first, let's see how the disciples failed at living a life of faith. And this is found in verses 38 through 43. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples. Now this section of scripture starts with the crowd. And then you see that Luke, as the author, he moves it from the crowd and then he focuses it on the father who's in anguish over his seizing son, right? Verse 38. But then in verse 40, his attention goes to the disciples. And it's on the disciples who who weren't able to help this guy's convulsing, seizing son. Now, how do you think the disciples were feeling at this time? Dejected? How do you think they felt? Powerless? What did they look like? And I think they looked pretty pathetic. You know, just kind of kicking the dirt and head down and just kind of mopey, shoulders down, like couldn't do anything. And I picture the disciples this way. Now, how did Jesus answer them in verse 41? Because I don't think that Jesus is addressing the crowd. I do think that he's addressing his, his disciples. I don't think he's addressing that father either. I think it's the disciples. And I think he's directing his answer to his disciples with this question. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? I think that because how did Jesus' question originate? It's not because of what the crowds couldn't do, right? It's because of what the disciples couldn't do. And the disciples, they've been with Jesus a couple years. They've been with him long enough to see who he really was. And, and they were commissioned to serve in Jesus' name. But here we find that they are powerless and they're unable to do this deed that the Father asks. And when we read this, we, we tend to look at the sorry state of the boy, don't we? Our, kind of, we, we kind of feel for the boy, like, oh, it's so sad. But what about the sorry state of the, of the disciples? Because they're in a pretty sorry state themselves. Here we have a father begging Jesus' disciples to cast out this demon. And he's confessing. He's telling the entire crowd, these guys can't do it. They, They can't do it. And so you talk about not performing on a big stage. I mean, this is a big crowd right here. And so you look back at chapter 9, verse 1. And it reads this, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure disease. Or disease is. So they were given all that they needed to help this boy. What went wrong? Why can't they do it here? It was their faith. It was their faith. Jesus said, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? And you recall when the disciples were in the storm right, right in the Sea of Galilee, Luke chapter 8? 
Jesus falls asleep after a hard day's work of ministry, and the disciples wake him up in verse 24, chapter 8, and they say, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. What did Jesus say to them in the very next verse? He said, where is your faith? This is right after Jesus told them in Luke chapter 8, verse 10. He said this, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now if anyone were to have faith, it would be them. They're given the, the secrets of the kingdom of God? And you don't have faith? And then in chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus called the twelve together and, they, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. I mean, these guys are given a lot of stuff. And then in chapter 9, verse 6, they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So you're talking about progress, right? These guys are doing it. These guys are living this. And they seem to be doing pretty well. But what happens after chapter 6? What happens here? The feeding of the 5,000. Right? The feeding of the 5,000. We're in chapter 9, verse 12. The 12 of them came to Jesus and, and said, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. Then what did Jesus say to them? You give them something to eat. They're like, What? Us? Yeah. This is, we only have five loaves of bread, two fish. How are we going to feed 5,000 guys? And this is 5,000 guys. So it's actually more than 5,000 people because they were just saying 5,000 men. And so where was their faith? And yet they were given the secrets of the kingdom of God. They were given power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And they witnessed Jesus calm a storm. And, and don't you think that it's not that large of a leap of faith to think that food would be provided, especially in light of the Exodus where manna was provided, the Israelites. And they would definitely know that story, that God did that. So where's their faith? And here we are with this distressed father and this child who's not well. And when we get to verse 41, I think the rebuke is toward the the disciples because it seems to fit how things are moving. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. They couldn't do it in the feeding of the 5,000 either, yet they were given all all these gifts. And the movement for the disciples seems to be one step forward and two steps back. Who has the faith? This is why I don't think it's actually towards the Father, because the Father has a lot of faith. He actually has a lot of it. Because if you imagine yourself in His shoes for a moment, Your child is suffering, so you bring your child to people who you think can help. And these people are disciples of Jesus. So you bring this child there, and and you find that those disciples couldn't do it. They couldn't deliver. Now, if that happened to you, would you go any further to Jesus, knowing that these people represent Jesus? Would Would you move any further? So do you see the Father's faith? Do you see his incredible faith? Ask yourself this question. What's the biggest obstacle to people coming to faith in Jesus? What's the biggest obstacle? It's his followers. Right? It's us. It's his church. We are the biggest obstacles. At the same time, we're the biggest help. 
We're the biggest help for the people to come to faith. God has made it so, so that we are His plan A. That's, that's how it's designed. We're His plan A. But we are also His biggest obstacles. Or people's biggest obstacles. And we represent Jesus, right? That's what Christians is, little Christ. But how are we representing Him? People come to us with all these various issues, right? As a church, we, we hear all these different issues. Now, how do we go about handling those issues? Are we representative of a loving God or are we misrepresenting our loving God? So here we have the disciples who represent Jesus. And what do they do? They flop. They, they don't deliver. And they were given power to do things in Jesus' name, including the power and authority over demons and to cure diseases, right, in verse 1. And, and they were doing it. They, they did it in verse 6. They were doing it. And Luke records that they were healing everywhere. Right? They, this was being done. It's not, it's not like they didn't have any evidence that, that what Jesus promised them in verse 1 wasn't happening. It was happening. And then this anguished father comes on behalf of his tormented son to the disciples of Jesus. And what happens? They flop. Now, if you were the father here, wouldn't you think that this whole Jesus thing is a farce? That's a joke. Sure, you can heal people. You've been saying you've been healing people, but I bring my kid to you and you can't even do a thing. I need something to heal my boy and you guys can't deliver. But that's not how the father is. The father didn't do that. His faith in Jesus was real and he went directly to Jesus even though, to the, even though his disciples couldn't pull through. Verse 40, it says, And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now how many people do you know who have walked away from having a relationship with Jesus because his followers didn't deliver or they didn't represent him well? They, they just... They didn't. They misrepresented God. And maybe you're here and maybe you're one of them. And I have to commend you for not letting that deter you from Jesus. That you are able to go directly to Jesus despite how others who are supposed to represent Him are treating you. And I commend you for your faith even though we have misrepresented Him. I actually had a call uh, this afternoon after the morning service of someone telling me of this very experience. That they had someone come with them to church and how they were um, mistreated by the church. And um, I, I went through this very section of the, the, the message here with, with this morning service and how it just spoke to them and that they felt like, yeah, I, I didn't desert Jesus. It's just I've been so hurt by the church. May we always point people to Jesus. It's, it's not ourselves. It's not our church. Jesus always delivers. While you and I, at good times, we might deliver. And at bad times, we might not. And we're just inconsistent. And it's, it's not about us anyway, right? It's about, our, it's about Jesus, our Savior. It's not about our church. It's not so much that of what we do or what we don't do. It's about Jesus and pointing people to Jesus. The grace of God is amazing, and we have to point them to that amazing God, not to us. So he knew the disciples would fail. I know that Jesus knew that. He knows that we are going to fail and that we are failing. Yet he still uses us as his plan A. 
We're still his plan A. And it's not about us. And sure, what we do and what we don't do, it influences people. But we can do the best things or the worst things. And if people still don't know Jesus, it doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter. May we point people to Jesus and him alone. We can do awesome things here. Right? We, can, we can do all the right programs. We can do all the right outreaches and ministries and serving social justice issues and do all the right stuff. But if we don't point them to Jesus Christ, what good is it in the everlasting? We can be the worst at things too, though, and then misrepresent Him and then cause people to fall and stuff like that. And what good is that also? But if we still are able to point them to Jesus even in, in our messed upness, at least we got something, right? And I'm sure we've, we've all seen these type of people who come to Jesus and we're just puzzled because how in the world did that person lead that other person to Jesus? That person's so messed up. Or how did that church lead people to Jesus? That church is so jacked up. You know, they don't even tell the spiritual laws right. They don't even say the gospel right. They, they leave out all these big sections of the message and all this stuff and yet people still go to God and they're going about it all wrong. But it's about Jesus. So people still end up getting saved and thank God for that. So when our faith is weak, when our faith is non-existent, Jesus is still faithful. It's not about us. It's about Him. And when we lack faith, when we lack love, when we lack compassion, when we lack patience, Jesus still retains all of those characteristics of God. You take a look at verse 42 and notice something here with me. Verse 42, while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Does this remind you of any other story that we've read already? Remember the widow in Nain? She lost her only son, Luke chapter 7, verse 14. Then he came up and touched the bier and the bearer stood still and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. He restored the boy to his mother. And what about Jairus and his daughter? Luke chapter 8, verse 54. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. So she is restored back to her family. And you notice that even though the disciples falter, the disciples witness Jesus do these things of restoration. Jesus restores things. And they were given the same ability to do the same things, but here we find that they were incompetent. And even though they were incompetent, Jesus doesn't lose his compassion on people. He doesn't look at us and say, like, oh, man, they couldn't deliver those other poor people. It's, it's not like Jesus deserts people because we fail to represent him well. He still has compassion for people. He still desires to restore people to their communities. He is mighty to save even when his followers are not. Verse 43, it reads, And all were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples. So we move from this failure of faith this section of the failure of faith from the disciples, to this failure of understanding in our next section, which is in verses 44 and 45. Let me read that for us. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask about this saying. Jesus pulled the disciples aside. He reminded them of something. 
something he had already shared with them in verse 22 after Peter's confession. Peter's confession of faith. In, in, in chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus reminds them of this in verse 44, but we find a failure of understanding as verse 45 tells us that they did not understand his saying. Right? They didn't fully understand that this Jesus, whom Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration with all his glory, with Moses, with Elijah, and he was the Messiah. He came to heal the sick. He performed miracles. He did incredible things. This is the confusing part. Yet he had to suffer, and he had to be rejected, and he had to die? This wasn't consistent for them. This was causing them confusion, and it prevented them from fully understanding what Jesus came to do. What the disciples saw, who the disciples saw, was an extremely powerful man. They saw a man who could raise people from the dead. They saw a man who could calm a storm that could heal lepers, that could forgive sins, which is something only God could do, who could battle the religious elite at their own game, the Pharisees, and that he would win. Who could multiply food. So in their head, this guy is powerful. What can't he do? This guy can do anything. This is God. So it makes sense to believe that Jesus could conquer the Roman Empire and establish his kingdom without going through this suffering stuff, without going through this rejection stuff, and without going through this death stuff. This doesn't make any sense. With all that power, this is just not understandable. Why would he have to suffer? Why would he have to be rejected? Why would he have to be killed to be raised on the third day? Which is what we'll be celebrating next week. So I'm not going to go into much discussion about that this evening. But this is just incomprehensible for the disciples. This doesn't make sense. And given their time and their place, I can actually empathize with them. Right? For us, it's easy to see because we have the whole Bible. We, have, we, have, we can read what happened. So looking back, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But put yourself in this time and this place before all the other stuff happens after Luke chapter 9. And you put yourself in that place... And I think you can understand a little bit more why they didn't get it. Because Peter doesn't get it way into the game. Right? Way into the game. Garden of Gethsemane. Judas comes to betray Jesus. Peter still doesn't get it. He still doesn't get it. Judas brings a band of soldiers, uh, some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They come with lanterns and torches and weapons. Peter becomes Ninja Peter, and he cuts off the high servant's right ear. Right? Malchus cuts off his ear. Peter still doesn't get it. And their understanding that Jesus had to suffer, be rejected, and die. It just wasn't in their, their realm of thinking. It didn't register with them. And verse 45 tells us it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. Now, I don't think that it was Jesus keeping this from them. I don't think that's so. I think he was telling them otherwise, like in verses 22 and verse 44. Now, when you look back at Luke chapter 8, verse 10, Jesus said to them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. I don't think he's hiding this from them. He gave them the secrets of the kingdom of God. 
But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And they were given the secrets of the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't keep this information from them. He's telling them this stuff. I think that their lack of understanding was because the reality of what was so contrary to them. What they thought would happen wasn't happening. And Jesus was telling them these other things that were contrary to them. Because what they were hearing and what they were seeing was this all-powerful God. And it blocked them from truly understanding what was going on. And they couldn't perceive because they couldn't grasp suffering, rejection, death. They couldn't get those things. Can't understand it. And it's concealed from them because of their own preconceived thoughts. Right? Thoughts that weren't from Jesus. Thoughts that were of their own. And sometimes we're guilty of this ourselves. Right? The Bible oftentimes tells us plainly what we are to understand, but we don't. And we can't. And rather we conceal it and we can't perceive because we come up with our own thoughts about the reality when the Bible is clear about the true reality. What we perceive to be reality is actually wrong. What we perceive to be true is actually false. Right? What, what Jesus tells us is honorable and reputable is not what others deem as honorable and reputable. So Jesus shows us that there is suffering involved when it comes to the purposes of God. That makes no sense, does it? He tells us on the Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter 6, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. That does not make any sense if you're not a Christian. What do you mean, blessed are the poor? Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now, How much more do we understand happiness if we really understand sadness? How much more do we understand satisfaction if we truly understand what being hungry is? How much more do we understand God if we understand our own depravity? You cannot understand a holy, righteous God if you don't understand your own sin. And some people try to fight that and they're saying, Oh, I'm I'm not a sinner. I'm not a sinner then you can't understand a holy God. You won't be able to grasp that. It won't make any sense to you. But we don't want to experience things like this, do we? We don't want to experience suffering. We don't want to experience rejection. We don't want to experience death. But if we don't experience those other things, we also won't experience a resurrection. We won't experience being raised. Yet we don't want to experience those things, and it's understandable. Who wants to suffer? Who wants to knowingly go into something suffering? But that's the very thing that is clouding their understanding of their discipleship to Jesus. That is what's clouding our understanding at times. And you ever wonder why we don't get to God sometimes? That we're just not breaking through? Perhaps it's something in regards to suffering or rejection, dying to ourselves. Verses 43 through 45. And all were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing. Now sometimes this is where we're caught. We're astonished at God's majesty. We're marveling at everything. When Jesus really wants to pull us aside and give us a talk, to give us some understanding. And here we let's continue. Jesus said to his disciples... 
Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. We read that the disciples failed in the realm of faith. That right here they are failing in the realm of understanding. And I can totally relate. Because I fail at both. Right? There are times that I have failed to have faith. And there are times I have failed to have understanding. And just like many of you, just like the disciples who physically walked with Jesus and they were with Jesus. This is like many of us where we believe in our hearts, but in terms of our actions and our knowledge, it hasn't caught up. And so there's this lag between our confession of faith and the living out of that faith. For some of us, it's too cerebral and we've not felt God. And for others, we've kind of felt Him, but we just really don't know Him. And so may both of those buckets just be really full. May we know Him in our minds where it's logical and it's reason, and may we even feel Him. And we know it in our hearts. And, and, and so we know people that kind of uh, know it in their hearts, but they don't know it in their heads. We know that we need a, a Savior, and we can feel that. But in our faith, in our understanding, in our heads, it's lacking as av- evidenced by the things that we're saying or even the things that we believe. Because it's all just emotion. Right? And it has to be both. And sometimes we believe, but we don't fully understand. Right? We, 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 do, that, we do that prayer, and we accept God because we feel like we need a Savior, but then it's not kind of registering in your head yet. And that's where we, study is so important, and that's where you know, we, that discipleship is so important. The Christian faith is a faith that is seeking understanding. It's not all heart, and it's not all emotion, and it's not all feelings. But it's also not all head, where you don't feel anything, where, the, where the, you know, the emotional attachment to God is non-existent, it's all in your head. It's not that either. And I want to point something out in verse 45. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This is a really bad place to be as a follower of Jesus. Afraid to ask him about things. That's not a good place to be. Right? Don't be afraid to ask. In order for us to grow in our faith, we have to seek understanding. We have to ask. We need to ask. And Jesus' brother James wrote this to us in chapter 1, verse 5 of James. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So ask. Ask. Don't be afraid to ask questions. May our faith continue to seek understanding. And so from, from the, the, the disciples, we have this failure of faith, right? They couldn't heal the boy. We have the failure of understanding. They didn't understand that Jesus had to suffer, that he had to be rejected, that he had to die. And now we get to their failure of humility. And that's in verses 46 through 48. Let's read that. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever received this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. You would think that somewhere along the line the disciples would get something right. Right? The 
feeding of the 5,000. They couldn't get it right. The healing of the boy, they couldn't get it right. And, and so they, they fail to understand because they still don't get that Jesus had to suffer, be rejected, and die. And then here it is again. Now they're fighting. They have an argument with each other about you know, who's greater than who and all this stuff. And this is just really childish, right? I'm, I'm better than you. I'm, I'm right and you're wrong. And I'm never playing with you again. I'm just conjuring up the arguments of my five-year-old and three-year-old, what they have with each other. And this is just how childish this is. Right? And you notice how Jesus handled this. He doesn't, he doesn't even give them a chance to debate this in front of him. He simply takes this child and he puts him by his side and he says, Whoever received this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. What did Jesus just do? Jesus just undermined their entire idea of what they thought was honorable and reputable in their culture. Here are these guys trying to vie for a position about who is greatest. And Jesus just kind of like wipes all of that out. Because in that culture, in that time, in that place... The acceptance, the welcome, the hospitality that Jesus extended to someone over, like this kid, would only be extended to someone who was considered your equal or considered more. That's who you would bring in like this. More honorable, more reputable. Children, they are at the bottom rung of the ladder in this culture, in this time. Children were not considered to be in a place of honor. But here Jesus is putting this child in a place that would just really baffle them. What? A kid? And Jesus brought this child to him because it was clear to his disciples that the child represented a very low place in terms of honor, in terms of status. Now if Jesus were to do this today in our culture, what he would be doing is he would ask someone who is marginalized in our society and he would bring that person over. And then he would say, the least. Right? He, would, he probably wouldn't use a child today. We have a different view of children today. Because I don't think we view them the same way. If anything, I think that we're guilty of idolizing our children. That's what I think. Anyway. But in our day, Jesus would bring a marginalized person over, someone who is viewed as insignificant by most people. And that's what he would do. And now if we truly understand the love of God, we will recognize that the honor God extends is also honored and extended to the least. Right? James chapter 2, verse 1, James wrote, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. No partiality. And so some questions to ask ourselves is, why are you serving? Why are you giving? Now, if you're not doing any of those two things, then that's the question for you. Why not? But if you are doing those things, why are you doing those things? Because are you doing it for recognition? Are you doing it for others to see it, for honor? Why are you doing those things, serving, giving? Why are you doing those things? So we had the failure of faith, the healing of the child, the failure of understanding that Jesus had to suffer, be rejected, and die. We have this failure of humility. These guys are arguing about who's the greatest among them. And we're going to close with this. The failure in acceptance, verses 49 through 56. So things are just not going well for these guys. It's just failure after failure after failure, right? 
verses 49 through 56. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. So there's this guy, he's casting out demons in Jesus' name. Nothing else is given about this guy except for this. And what we read here is how territorial the disciples were. And because this guy wasn't directly with them, he tr- they tried to stop him. Now what's funny about this is that this guy was doing exactly what they couldn't do for the distressed father's son. This guy's able to do it. Right? And they were given the power to do what this guy is doing. But they couldn't do it. They weren't able to help that boy. And now they're trying to stop someone from doing what they couldn't do. That's just an ironic thing, isn't it? So it makes me think that the stoppage that the disciples are trying to impose on this guy was driven by pride. was driven by jealousy. Like, we're, we're the ones. Like, Jesus told us we have that power. What's that guy doing over there? Right? Because we're, we're the guys, right? We're the ones that were chosen. We, we're the ones hanging out with Jesus. He gave us power and authority. So what if we're not effective? We're, we're the ones. But it was their faith. It was their understanding. It was their lack of humility that caused them not to be able to do this. And, and then they encounter this guy who is doing the very thing that they are supposed to be doing, but they can't. And now they try to shut them down. How many churches do we know like this? There's a church here, and another church comes in, and they get all, they throw a hissy fit saying, oh, we're here, and they're going to take people away and do all this and do that, and, you know, we're already here. The funny thing is that Jesus just told them to honor those who are marginalized, and he uses this example of a child. He brought them to him, and right after that, these guys are trying to run off somebody who's doing the work with Jesus because they're claiming that they're not with him. And the disciples feel that they are the only ones to go about doing the work of Jesus. And that they have some honorable standing because they were there first or that they were with Jesus there. But that's not so. This guy is doing the work of Jesus. So I'm glad that we have other churches planted around here. I like that. I'm so glad that Tribe is two blocks from here. Tribe planted two blocks from us. There's another church called Instill that's three and a half miles north of us. I'm so glad that those guys are here. Those guys are my friends. And I'm glad because they serve people that we don't. They reach out to people that we don't. And, And sure, some of us differ on our beliefs. Not necessarily those two guys. But there are a ton of church plants going around here. Within the 10 mile radius, there are a ton of new church plants. Some of them differ on beliefs. Now the major ones, if, if there's some heretical thing there, if, you know, with Easter coming up and they say like, oh, Jesus didn't raise from the dead, he didn't die. I'm right there. And heresy, that's not true. 
If it's a major thing, Jesus isn't God. He's just a prophet. I'm right there to, to fight that. But, but, it's, but if it's a minor thing, I'm okay. It doesn't bother me. Now, watch out for the ones who claim that they're the only ones that have it right. The ones that say like, oh, only the Spirit is working through our movement and that's it. We're the ones that got it right. It's moving through us. Or, or we know we are the only ones that really understand the Bible and really can give you the answers. Watch out for those. Watch out for the ones that claim that God is only working there. Those are dangerous. Jesus rebuked his own disciples for that. And they were right there with him. How can a church or people, we're not even right there with Jesus, claim such things? So the thing is, don't major on the minors and don't minor on the majors. Does that make sense? See, for example, we're not very liturgical here, as you can see. Right? We're not. But don't think that God isn't here as we worship. He is. He's doing amazing things through our church. But the same thing is true vice versa. You go to a liturgical church... And you're thinking like, oh, they're so uptight. Everything's so like, or so everything's like this. And you just repeat things and they don't come out of your heart. They're not spontaneous. And you're just kind of responding with the thing that's already written and all this kind of stuff. And they're dressed funny and whatever. But may we accept one another as followers of Jesus, even though we have different worship styles. That's a minor. That's not a major. Right? And, and then the disciples get to a Samaritan village and they're rejected. See how much they don't understand this suffering, rejection, dying thing? They don't get this because right here they're being rejected. The disciples fail again. They fail in this acceptance. They fail in understanding again. They fail in faith too. You want to, you, let's take a look at it this way. I find it really funny that they don't have enough faith to cure one sick boy. But here they have enough faith to call down fire to destroy a whole city. Isn't that weird? And so if at any time Jesus was frustrated, it's probably here. Right? It's just like, oh my gosh, these guys aren't getting it. And, and, And he turned and he rebuked them. And then they went on to another village. It's as if Jesus was saying like, let's get out of here already. Yes, man, you don't get it. Let's go. Let's go to another city. Because this obviously isn't working. Right? So first they failed to heal the, heal the boy, and they failed in their faith. And then they failed to understand the atonement, even though it was shared with them before, even though Peter confessed it. And then they're not even interested in seeking understanding. Instead, they're afraid. They don't want to ask questions. And then they start going all Muhammad Ali, right? And they're like, who's the greatest? I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. And they want to get all, you know, they want to fight about this stuff. And then they start trying to stop people who are doing the works of God. And to top it all off, they want to burn down a city. These are our Christian forefathers. And so when people say like, man, your church is messed up. Yeah, look, look at what we had to work with. This is where it's all coming from. And so when you're talking about a dysfunctional church, does it make... Uh, yeah! I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wish that your house burns down now. Like, you know what I mean? So you look back at verse 51, because I find 51 funny also. I find the Bible very funny. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
Now, how much longer until he really went to Jerusalem from this point? Have you ever thought about that? His face was set on Jerusalem back here. But it's a year later that he actually goes from this point. Jesus already set his face to Jerusalem a long time ago. And here's a reminder that he set his face to Jerusalem. But he couldn't go for another year because of these yahoos. Right? They aren't Googles. They're yahoos. So can you imagine if Jesus at this point right here said, um, I'm going to go to the cross now. Right after these guys are wanting to burn villages. Right, right after all this stuff. He couldn't, right? And when it looked like the disciples were making progress, right? Verse 6. Healing everywhere, village to village. They, they, were, they were doing it. They were on. And, they, and then they pulled this series of failures. Unfaithfulness. Misunderstanding. Pride. Violence. Revenge. Spite. All this stuff. Things that aren't synonymous with being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And then regarding these Samaritans who rejected Jesus... Jesus rebuked them for those hateful thoughts. They were rebuked. And Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amidst all these failures of the disciples, isn't this so encouraging to us? Isn't, it, isn't this an encouragement? Because how many of us have failed in regards to faithfulness, understanding, humility, acceptance, violence, revenge, spite? Yet Jesus still used these guys. He still established the church with these guys. Isn't that encouraging for us? That he still uses us. We're still his plan A, even though we're so messed up, even though we fail so much, that he still redeems the time, he still redeems our works. And Jesus still invested his life into these guys for another year. And he still died for them on the cross, and he still rose on the third day, just like he did for us. The faith that he has in us is the same that he had in his disciples, that we are to carry out his gospel in his kingdom here. It's the same commission. And thank God that we're not rejected in our failures, because we fail so much. We do so many things that are just not right. And it's actually quite the opposite. Right? We're loved in our failures until the end of our lives. And then for those of us who believe Jesus is, is our Lord and Savior, we're with Him everlasting. And that's an awesome God. May, may the failures of the disciples serve as an encouragement to us. Right? That showing us that God is the one who is faithful. God is the one who is understanding, who is humble, who is accepting, loving, gracious, merciful. That that is God. And even though we fail on those things, that God is still having that in His character. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your encouraging words. Lord, for anyone here who feels that they are less than because of whatever reason, 
that they have this series of failures in their life. I pray, Lord, that you would restore them to community. Just like that dead boy, just like the convulsing boy to his father, just like Jairus' daughter. And as you restore, Lord, I pray that we would not be so hard on ourselves, that we would see that we are a new creation in you, that we would see that we are truly loved by you, and that despite all the junk that is in our past, that you are able to use us, that you you used the disciples in such a mighty way, you used these people that just failed five times in a row and just couldn't get things right, yet you still died for them, you still chose them to be your plan A. In Jesus' name, amen.